Well, we are between sermon series this week. Uh, We have just finished the last three weeks a short series on going through the gospel. I actually toyed with the idea of uh, this morning having you all have a piece of paper and and testing you to see how many of you could draw out the six squares of sharing the gospel, gospel on a napkin, but uh, I'm not going to put you to that. I do hope that that whether you, uh, you find that way of sharing the gospel helpful or you have another way that you, you share the gospel that, that works for you, that you, you do it and you have a way. And that's really the whole intent is not to, not to have everybody do the same thing other than the same thing of sharing the gospel. And if we have been impacted by Christ's faithfulness, by His grace that is poured out on us, that should overflow in our lives and sharing that with other people. So we're between that series and the next series, which I'm about to start, is the Gospel of Mark. So we have this week before we start the Gospel of Mark that, uh, that, that is just right between those two, and providentially it's the same timing as when we are introducing our new giving portal, PushPay. So for me, it was a really a providential opportunity to address part of the worship service that you may not necessarily think as worship, and that is the offering. I was, a, I was a pastor at a church for a number of years that when I got there, they did not take the offering as part of their worship service. They had boxes in the back. You could put your check in. They had ways to give online, but they didn't do that as part of their service. And when I, when I questioned that, <clears throat> the response I was given from the leadership is, well, we really don't want to interrupt our worship with an offering. And I didn't say it quite like this to them, but this is certainly what was in my my heart. You're missing the point. The offering is an act of worship. And all through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, whenever you see offerings giving to the Lord, whether it's the grain offerings in Leviticus or whether it's the offerings Paul talks about when he writes to churches in Corinth and, and Philippi, you see that those offerings are not given to somehow improve our standing before God or, or get us access to God. They're given in response to God's faithfulness. They're given in the New Testament in response to the grace of Jesus Christ poured out upon us. And so the offering is an act of worship. Just one, in one particular incidents of that. In in Philippians 4.18, Paul is commenting on an offering that the church, the believers at the church in Philippi have raised, and, and it's given to him for his mission support, just like our offering goes to support the ministry and, and the people who make uh, the, the ministry continue to function here at Central Church. So it is to, for his mission support, but notice what he says about it. I have received from Epaphrodites the gifts, the offering that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, I want you to think about this. Yes, the money that they raised was needed for his mission support, for his ministry to continue. The money that we take in in our offering is is needed for the ministry of Central Church to continue. But but Paul doesn't want them or us to miss the bigger purpose here. We give because it is pleasing to God. We give because it is an act of worship. 
Now, I, I, I want to address a couple of what I would call inferior motives for giving, because when we think of giving as an act of worship, if that's the true motive that we're to have in our heart, what often happens? What often are, are, is, is our heart mixed with as, as we make decisions about giving or not giving? Here's one inferior motive. I would call it, what will people think? And, and maybe this is more common and in, in, in former generations, but the plate is coming down the, the, the row, and, uh, and, and the plate is just about right in front of you, and you suddenly think, oh my gosh, I haven't, I'm not ready for this, but if I don't put something in, what will the people on either side of me or the usher think? We're making a giving decision to give or not give based upon what do our neighbors, what will other people think of us if we don't give? And that really is what the Bible calls the fear of man. The writer of Proverbs 29.25, the fear of man is a snare. We're to, we're to fear the Lord, not to fear what other people think of us. John, Jesus in John 12 addresses this about religious people who love the approval of men more than the approval of God. And so if my giving decisions, if your giving decisions are made based upon, will somebody think better of me if, they give, if I give, if they know I give, or will somebody think less of me if I don't give or, or don't give as much, we have a very inferior motive of giving. That is not giving as an act of worship. Here's the second one. I call it simply this, paying your dues. We, you know, we join health clubs we, we join maybe, you know, uh, um, golf clubs or country clubs, other, other places that we have in our culture where we pay dues on whatever regular basis it is, and we do that so that we can have certain services and certain access to certain services and response. And when we do that, if the quality of the service starts to decline, we make maybe new decisions about whether we're going to keep giving, whether we're going to keep belonging to that health club or whatever it is. In other words, we're giving really thinking of what does what I give buy me? What does what I give get me? We're viewing the church in the same way we would view as a health club. And I appreciate what Pastor Doug Paget has to say about this, that one of the reasons that churches in North America have trouble guiding people uh, about money is that the church's economy is built on this sense of consumerism. In other words, that I, I get what I pay for, or you should give me what I am paying for. If churches, he says, see themselves as suppliers of, of religious goods, our programs, our, our services, and their congregants as consumers, you are paying to get what we can offer to you, then offerings are payment. And that is an in very inferior motive for giving. Christianity isn't about payment for services. Think about why, how it is that we are saved. Think about the very essence of the gospel. It is about salvation by grace. I don't pay to be forgiven. I can't pay. I can't pay that back for what God has done for me in Christ. So Jesus tells us that our response to the grace that is poured out on us should be to graciously give. Freely, he says, you have received, Matthew 10.8. Freely give. The response to the grace that I've received is to give all of me, including what's in my bank accounts. 
Here's a, a third inferior motive. It's what I would call influence and leverage. The example that always comes back to me is one church that I pastored. I, I remember the head elder, Neil, had a conversation one time with a, a wealthy member of the congregation who came to him as the head elder and said, you know what, I'm really sick and tired of where the music is going and our services here. And my wife and I have discussed it, and we are going to withhold our giving if you're going to be responsible for the, the music still going in this stylistic direction. And this elder, Neil, had the presence of mind to say, and I believe he said this as calmly and as gently as he could, but he said, if that's why you give, then I don't think God wants your money. That man was motivated, like, like, like it's very easy for any of us to be motivated, to give as a way of influencing things, to give as a way of leverage. I want my preferences. I want my style of music. I want my seat. I want my programs. I want the staff members that I want. And my giving will directly be affected by whether I am getting what I want. That's not giving out of a heart of worship. Paul speaks to that motive through James when he warns against letting people's wealth or their lack of wealth influence how you treat them. He says in James 2, if you give special attention to those who are wealthy, but you overlook those who are poor, you are practicing discrimination. And that discrimination, James says, shows that your judgments are guided by wrong motives. And so his summary statement, James 2.1, show no partiality. We shouldn't give more favor to somebody who is wealthy or more favor to someone who is less wealthy or, or even poor in what we do. Well, instead of these inferior motives for giving, Jesus teaches us a superior motive. And, and I see that many places, but the one I'm going to pick this morning is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Uh, let me start just with verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now think about that for a moment. When I try to accumulate stuff, when I try to build bank accounts and investments, when that becomes all-encompassing important to me, what I'm doing Jesus says here, makes no sense if you have a long view of it. My money and my possessions can be stolen. They can be damaged. My home can be hit in a hurricane and destroyed. Our bank accounts can go through, our investments can go through financial upheaval and be lost. I, I love how Randy Alcorn says it in his book, Money and Eternity. You can't keep it, and you can't take it with you. You can't load up all the stuff you have in a U-Haul trailer and have it pulled behind your hearse when you die. Jesus says that is a short-sighted perspective to what we have. Instead, verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Again, Randy Alcorn just says it the best. You can't keep it. You can't take it with you but you can send it on ahead. You can send it on ahead. Jesus tells us to use our money to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. 
In other words, when we view our money, our houses, our, all our possessions, all our resources, when we view that as something that God entrusts to us to use to impact people's eternal destiny, then we are focused upon treasures in heaven. We have the long view in mind. I know so... Whoa. Wasp. I, I know so often we're focused in our culture about, uh, about you know, what are you worth? And what, what, what do you have? And, and really, our real worth in Jesus' eyes, our real worth is what, what will be ours in eternity. What we have invested in now with what we've done with God is entrusted to us. Now, I, I know that at some level we all know this. If we've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, but we so easily forget it. Why is it that we so easily lose our focus upon this? Again, I, I like how Randy Alcorn puts it. By the way, his book, probably the best I've ever read on money, uh, Money in Eternity by Randy Alcorn, he says this, I'm convinced that the greatest deterrent to our giving is this, the illusion that earth, that life as it is now, is our home, that this is it that this is our best life now, that this is what we're here to enjoy. Where we choose to store our treasures, where we focus on accumulating things, depends largely on where we think our home is. He goes on to say, those who think of, of, of earth as our present earthly life, as their real home, will naturally want to pile up treasures here. We will want to accumulate stuff and things and money. But those who think of heaven as their real home will naturally want to pile up treasures there. So it all comes down to the question, where is your home? Do you think that this is your home? Do you think that this is where life is to be enjoyed in its fullest? Or do you think that this is simply a journey? We're on a journey through this life to what is our real home. And if we think of this life on this earth as our home, then we're going to tend to hold on to our money We're going to tend to want to protect our stuff. We're going to devote all this energy and this time and this thought to trying to accumulate and maintain and secure and use these things to to, to somehow please ourselves as if we can get some kind of joy out of them. But if heaven is our true home, if really we are about storing up treasures in heaven. And if this life, we, we realize it's just a journey to get eventually, then we begin to think differently about how we use the money and the stuff that God has entrusted to us. Our, our desires start shifting from, from wanting to buy and protect and store up our, our treasures on this earth, the things we think are going to make us happy, and we begin to make strategic decisions. How much of my income do I really need to keep? Do I really need to get that bigger house or that next car? What should I do with this unexpected windfall of funds? That that long-sighted approach begins to change the way that we think about this. I I mentioned before here, one of my my favorite things to do is, is hike the Appalachian Trail. Started it in my early 50s. I try to get out there. Uh, every year, once or twice, for four, five, six days at a time. And the picture you see up there on the screen is, is me uh, finishing my first state, uh, Georgia, and uh, passing into North Carolina. This is a number of years back. And, 
And what you may not be able to fully appreciate is how heavy that pack is on my back. Why? Because the first couple of years, uh, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to be out for four or five days, and I'm going to take everything I think I could possibly need. My pack was, you know, somewhere between 40 to 50 pounds. And northern Georgia is all ups and all downs. And 40 to 50 pounds, I don't care what age you are, on your back going up and down the mountains of north Georgia is really hard on your body and especially on your knees. And as I began to do this and learn from this, I began to see, you know, I don't need all this stuff. And I'd go through my pack at the beginning of each trip and say, I didn't use this last time. I'm not taking it. I don't think I'll ever have a need for this. I'm not taking it. And my pack has gotten lighter and lighter. And my trip has become more enjoyable. And I'm more able to enjoy the trip and going towards the destination than when I carried and accumulated all this stuff in the pack on my back. And that is really how I think the Lord is working in my heart, and I hope He's working in your heart to think about what He gives to us in this this life. We can accumulate all kinds of stuff. Stuff isn't bad, but stuff is distracting. Stuff weighs us down. Stuff has to be maintained, and stuff has to be protected. Stuff has to be stored. I won't even embarrass you by asking how many of you have storage units because you can't fit all your stuff at home. Or how many of you can't fit your cars in the garage because your garages are packed with stuff? That, that is, if we're not careful, hear me closely, if we're not careful, that can be an orientation towards finding that this is our home now rather than heaven is our home and we're on a journey towards our home. So Jesus says our motive for giving is to store up treasures in heaven. What, what does he mean by that? What are, what are the treasures in heaven that, that, that as we give and, and we seek to, to enable the Lord's work here and around the world, what are the treasures that we store up for ourselves in heaven? There are many, but let me give you just three this morning. The, the first treasure, and for me, the one that has become increasingly the greatest is what Paul in Philippians 3 calls gaining Christ. Philippians 3.8, everything, he's thinking about the life that he's left behind. Everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And it's for his sake that I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Gain Christ here is more than just, yeah, I'm saved. Gain Christ, gaining Christ is is this, as he says it here, the infinite value of knowing in an increasing measure, knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Knowing how he sustains me, knowing how he empowers me, knowing how he gives me perspective. As we grow more and more and more in that, culminating finally when we see Him face to face. That is all about gaining Christ. And the trajectory that He has us on there makes that a treasure. As we see each year, I've I've gained this much. I, I appreciate Christ so much more in my life this year than last year. It just shows us what one day we will fully gain when we see Him face to face. Here's a second treasure in heaven, authority. And you heard me right, authority. Jesus, Jesus speaks about this in many places, but Matthew 25, 21, when he says to his followers, when you're faithful with the few things that I've entrusted you now in this life, 
then I will put you in charge of many things. What is he talking about? Jesus is promising his followers who faithfully use the resources that God has entrusted to them to invest for eternity. He's promising that in eternity, he will put them in charge of many things. And I know we don't speak much about rewards in the church today, but rewards are not something that we earn. Rewards are not something that we are worthy of. But the reality is that the saints will rule with Christ in His eternal kingdom. He will give us positions of authority, positions that we rule in underneath Him. And the position that He gives to you or me is determined by how faithful in this life we presently are with what He's entrusted to us. How can He entrust us with much in eternity if we've not been faithful with what He's entrusted to us in this life. And so, the authority, the position to rule in His kingdom is part of the treasures in heaven. And finally, crowns. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about crowns, and if you've come across that in Scripture, I don't know if you, you think of that as literal or as symbolic, but either way, what it clearly is is an image of rewards given to believers in heaven for their faithfulness now in this Christian life. We see many references to this. To 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of righteousness. That is a reward that Christ gives for faithfulness for how we use our gifts and our resources now in this life. That, that determines the crown of righteousness that will be given to you in eternity. Or James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10, the crown of life. The crown of life is the reward that Christ gives for overcoming temptation, for enduring testing and trials, or the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4. That is the reward that is promised to those who faithfully shepherd His people, who are in some kind of shepherding role and, and, and accomplish that faithfully. So, the best motive to give, again, I want to come back to Randy Alcorn's phrase, is to keep in mind, we can't hold on to it. We can't take it with us, what we have, but we can send it on ahead. I know that's truly countercultural. I know that is not at all the way the world looks at this. I love what the 19th century devotional writer Andrew Murray had to say about this. The world asks, what do you own? But what is it that Jesus Christ asks? How are you using what you own? How are you investing what you own? Or Jim Elliott, the young missionary who, who left what could have been, I'm sure, a very successful by the world's terms, middle-class American life, and went to South America and was martyred at a young age. He knew why he was going. Jim Elliott is the one who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't take it with you, so you're no fool to give what you cannot keep, but you can send it on ahead to gain what you cannot lose. Well, let me conclude with four brief principles of giving, and I draw these all from one verse from, from Paul's instruction to a church just like ours in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 16.2. Let me give you the whole verse, and then I'll break it down quickly in the four principles. He's writing to them about taking their offerings, and this is what he has to say. On the first day of every week, 
Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. I see in there four principles of biblical giving for believers who are part of a local church like us. The first is this. Our giving should be regular. And notice what he says, on the first day of every week. Now, now we don't have to understand the culture there. Most of the people who were part of the church were day laborers. You'd work a day, you'd get your pay at the end of the day, you'd worship at the end of the week. So that's why save it up, save up what you're going to give, give every week. Obviously, culturally, we may, work, we may get paid in different schedules. We may get paid every week, we may get paid every two weeks, we may get paid monthly or quarterly or, or whatever. But the, the, the idea is in whatever way that God brings in income into my household, with that regularity, I give back whether that's weekly or bi-monthly or quarterly. Uh, You know, people ask, well, well, what if I'm not there to give it? That is exactly the reason to use an online giving situation or set up like like PushPay. We have a home church, Cindy and I, in in Jacksonville, Florida. Obviously, we're not there very much of the time because we're ministering here. But we support that church. That's our church home. And so we've set up recurring giving. We've gone on their website. They have something similar to push pay. We give every week. It just automatically is scheduled. It automatically happens. I don't have to think about it. And when you take advantage of that and and you go to our push pay page, I think there's a picture up on the screen there. You see that you can set up recurring giving however it works for your income, whether that's every week or every two weeks or on the 1st and the 15th or every month, or whatever you prefer. And that, that allows for you to go on vacation or be on a trip and not have to think about it. But it all comes back to that biblical principle, our giving should be regular. Secondly, our giving should be shared. Again, back to what he says in 1 Corinthians sixteen two: Each one of you, as he talks about giving. Paul taught that every believer in the Corinthian church. And by extension, every believer who's part of this local church body should participate in some way in the offerings that are being gathered for that church. And obviously, there's going to be all kinds of degrees of this based upon the kind of income that God blesses us with. But having a low income does not exempt anyone from giving. Every believer is to participate, each one of you, Here's the reality, though. A study by the Dunn Corporation reported this finding. In the typical church today, 25% of the congregation gives 90% of the weekly offering. In simple terms, nearly three-quarters of the American church attenders drop about a buck a week in the offering. And that is not fitting with that biblical principle that God has given us through Paul, that we all participate in some way in the giving Number three, third principle, our giving should be intentional. Intentional. Again, he gives them instructions as as people who were paid probably on a daily basis, set aside a sum of money, saving it up. So when you go to worship, you give it. Think about your intentionality or your lack of intentionality in making your giving decisions. When is it that you decide to give what you're going to give? Is it when the offering is announced or the offering plate 
becomes, starts to come down the aisle, the row that you're seated in. There's no intentionality in that. And when I've been in those situations before, and I'm not ready for that, I don't give out a heart of worship. I, I give grudging in my heart. I give irritated. I give, I give anxious when I'm caught off guard like that, and I have not thought through and made an intentional decision about when and how much I'm going to give. When should you make your decision about giving? 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one of you should give just as he has decided in his heart. So if you're married, I would suggest this, with your spouse, have a little marital meeting where you decide how often are we going to give, what's the frequency, what's the amount, how are we going to do it? Are we going to put a check in the offering plate? Are we going to, are we going to sign up for recurring giving online? Make that decision. And here's the promise in 2 Corinthians 9-7. As you do that, you give not reluctantly. You give not under compulsion. Instead, you give as a cheerful uh, giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that raises the question, where should you give your money to? Where should your money go, give, uh, go to, at least first, when, when you're giving? I want to suggest to you, if you think of all your income as, as a pie, that the first slice of your income goes to your, your spiritual community, your local church. In other words, the first giving decision that we should make is the sum of money that we will set aside for our local church. Now, why is that? Because our local church is the primary place where we're spiritually fed. Our local church should be the place where we are equipped. We may do ministry outside the local church in many contexts, but our local church should be the place that we come back for support, to be fed, to be equipped, to be energized, to be set out, sent out for ministry. And so we give because it's the New Testament model of giving to the local church. We give because it's our primary spiritual community. And whatever concerns whatever disappointments we may have with our local church at, at any given time, we need to view those in light of this truth that the local church is God's plan A until Christ returns. It is His vehicle, as imperfect as it is because it's peopled with imperfect people, it is His vehicle for sending people out to accomplish the Great Commission. And so I give, I give even when I'm disappointed I give even when decisions are made at my home church that I don't necessarily agree with. I give because I'm not giving to pay for those or influence those. I give because I'm given as an act of worship to God. What about other requests? If the first slice goes to your local church, what about when you come across a worthy missionary request, a, a need to send out missionaries, a need on a mission field, a need in a local ministry, a, a charitable need. Uh, how do you give to those as well? well? What I would say this is this, don't rob what you've already decided to give to your local church in order to, 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 pay, to pay for those requests. You've decided on that slice, don't further slice up that slice and apportion it out to different sources. Instead, look at the rest of the pie. Maybe it is your eating out that you need to give up in order to be able to give to that missionary or to respond to that charitable request. Maybe it is your vacation plans that need to be rethought. 
Maybe even the kind of house and car that, uh, that you own needs to be rethought if God is putting on your heart to be able to give more and more to meet missions needs and local ministry needs. Finally, our giving should be increasing. And I see this again in 1 Corinthians 16 too. Paul says, each person is to give in keeping with his income. And what's the logical implication? As your income increases, as God blesses you with more income, your ability to give out of that income logically increases. I've had people say to me, well, I tithe. I give my 10%. You know, aren't I good? In other words, maybe they say it a little more politely than that, but what about tithing? Doesn't that kind of set the bar? And I, once I get over that bar, I'm, I'm good? Uh, again, I borrow this from Randy Alcorn, but this really speaks to me. Tithing is just the training wheels. Tithing is the training wheels for our giving. You, you, know, you know that image of training wheels. You start as a little child riding the bike, and in order to maintain a balance, you have those training wheels. And that gets you started, that, where you learn the balance. But as you grow in your ability to ride that bike, soon the training wheels go off and you can fly on ahead. And that's the same with tithing. If you've not started to give 10% the tithe, that's a good first place to shoot for. But once you achieve that, it's not like you've hit some mark and it's never going to change. God wants, and, and, and God blesses you in order for you to be able to give well beyond that as He moves in your heart to do so. One of the most wonderful examples I, I've ever heard about is, is the example of R.G. Letourneau, who is the founder of Letourneau Technologies. They make heavy earth-moving equipment. They're based in, in Texas. He started as a very poor man, but made a commitment that because of what God had done for him in Christ, he was going to give. If God blessed him with more income, he was going to give more income. And by the time of his death, he was giving away 90% of his income and living on the remaining 10%. Now, he was a very wealthy man at that point. Living on that 10% probably wasn't too hard, but that was done over a lifetime, starting at a place where he had nothing. And giving of that 90% goes so well beyond what even wealthy people would ever considering doing. But here's, here's what Letourneau himself had to say when, when he was asked about that. You can't outgive God. He said, I just keep shoveling out, and God just keeps shoveling back, but God's got a bigger shovel. And that's, that's the reality that when, we, when our heart is giving out of a, as a response of worship, and we are giving in an increasing measure as God increases what He has entrusted to us, that's what we find Him to be. He's the one who always has the bigger sh shovel. Let me close with this. And... Uh, I, I say this speaking the truth in love to Central Church, although this could be said to many churches that I've been a part of. It's really Brian Kluth's words, but I would say it to us. No church has a money problem, only a faithfulness problem. Central Church does not have a money problem. It has a faithfulness problem. All the money to do all the ministry of our church and well beyond on the mission fields that we reach out to is here. We have it, or it's coming in. God has allowed it to come in regularly to our lives. Our issue is our unwillingness to give it. 
Our issue is, is hanging on to it. Our issue is our earthly focus that this is our home. Billy Graham said this, if we get our attitudes right towards money, it will help straighten out almost every other area in our lives. And I believe that, and Scripture testifies to that. We give as an act of worship. We give in response to the faithfulness of God to His promises. We give 2 Corinthians 8, 9 because we know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich in His place in heaven and glory, though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, coming down to this earth, taking upon Himself the form of a man, going and dying on the cross so that we through His poverty might become rich. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we worship You as the one who laid aside Your glory, all the riches of Your glory, and You came and You took on the poverty of the human condition, the poverty of all of our sin, all the condemnation of our sin upon Yourself. And as You've taken that upon Yourself, You've given to us, You've imputed to us Your righteousness so that we are rich in righteousness. We are rich in our ability to have treasures in heaven. Lord, give us that same mindset. Give us an eternal perspective. Help us to be about treasures in heaven, Lord. We pray this, that you would be lifted up and glorified. Amen.